Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. Gabriel Prokofiev is a highly acclaimed musician and producer working in the world of classical and electronic music. New ground for the podcast, Ben? It really was, wasn't it? This was the, the sort of first time for us diving into anything to do with um, classical music. Although, you know, when, when Gabriel came to answer that question, he put a lot of detail into the fact that his his background is far more extensive than that. And lots of the questions that um, get covered in the course of this episode challenge lots of the assumptions around what a classical musician should be, don't they? Yeah, they definitely do. And um, it was great for uh, it was great to be able to kind of uh, explore and talk about not just the genre, but his process for making new music and how he begins new work. And, you know, it, it's a it's a way of working that is completely alien to me. Um, so it was brilliant to have an opportunity to sort of dive into that a little bit. Well, you say dive in and he really did dive into the conversation about the sort of specifics, answering those questions around complexity of sound and how he goes about um, beginning kind of composition in in a lot more detail than we've covered in many of the other episodes, I thought. Yeah. And I guess before we go too much further, we should just say, you know, Gabriel Prokofiev, so uh, grandfather, Sergei Prokofiev, and... That's something we talked about before we did the interview, whether or not we get into those kind of um, some of the background stories and that. And actually, we didn't on the day because it felt more, I guess, ultimately, we wanted to concentrate on him and his individuality and his kind of uh, his um, approach to music, didn't we? Although we, we both had some good kind of Peter and the Wolf stories that we could have um, could have wheeled out at any point. I think we did bizarrely both have Peter and the Wolf stories, which we didn't get to share. But yeah, maybe uh, uh, if if Gabriel comes back on the show, which we're hoping he might, um, um, then we will we'll have an opportunity to share those. <laughs> Although mine <laughs> mine is a little bit confessional, and I'm not sure if I want to share it on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, I've talked to several other people afterwards, and I think it's something about the the time that we grew up in, but. I think lots of people, for lots of people, that was their entry point into, you know, music or classical music. So, yeah, lots of Peter and the Wolf stuff out there, out and about. <laughs> it's an offshoot podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very small offshoot. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, one of the things I really loved speaking to Gabriel was how expressive he was during the show. How, I think we sort of... Uh, refer to it in the actual show itself but he was talking with his arms and his hands and and his and there was so much um passion and expression in just the way that he talks about making music but that i I really really loved um and and then how he described the opportunities that he that he's had to hand over music and hear it performed by other people which is I mean, a moment not on the same scale, but I, it took me back to the time when uh, we recorded some flotation stuff with um, a male voice choir mm-hmm. in San Roost. And that first time of you and Paul coming over, having written written the part for the choir uh, and coming over and hearing the choir sing it back to us for the very first time and how magical that was. There's a little glimpse into the, some of the stuff that he talks about. Oh yeah, I think that's that's that moment of being in Clan Roos with that and meeting the choir master 
with his wonderful persona and the way that he bossed his his uh, crew around it was it was fantastic wasn't it you know I'll, that moment's going to stay with me forever yeah and then, like you say it was it was brilliant to hear gabriel talking about that you know that moment of handing over a score into the hands of other musicians um and how um enthused he was about the sense of possibility that came out of that. He also talked about the recording with the um, with the open orchestra in 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 Russia, and about how that recording changed his perspective on his own music, enabled him to kind of take a step back and go with something that he hadn't thought as a possibility before. And I think that I was you know really appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah. It's some really it's some lovely. Um, he shares some lovely uh, um, memories and. Uh, there are links in the show notes, as always, to um, to follow up. And I would strongly encourage people to do it because Gabriel's work is truly fantastic. And this conversation really sets it up nicely as a, as a kind of in to perhaps uh, for, for anyone who perhaps doesn't think that it's for them. There were a couple of moments that for me in the conversation that really, really stuck out. There was one around his, you know, his engagement with turntablism mm. and the, the um, how he... Um, talked about them as virtuoso, virtuoso musicians that I really kind of stayed with me, um, and his impact into incorporating that that specific music and the pride that he had with about you know the the change that that had made for him, and I really loved the conversation that we had around how his latest album for him was in partly around uh, challenging kind of racial and social discrimination and barriers that you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to it, but the way he talks about it um, and around the criminalization of UK grime and the garage scene, you know, in its early, in early initiation. um, Yeah. It was that again, that really stayed with me. Yeah. A reason, a reason to listen uh, uh, in and of itself. Absolutely. Uh, Well, this is our first show for a few weeks, but we've got some great episodes lined up. So please do help us spread the word and help more people find the show. Indeed. Um, before I close out, I just have to give a quick um, shout out to my um, my mum and dad's good friends, John and Teresa, who put us on to um, uh, Gabriel's um, radio series, The Electronic Cent- uh, Century, which is a brilliant exploration of the history of electronic music. And then, you know, enabled us to get in touch with him. And uh, yeah, so thanks for that. And uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, this conversation as much as we did so let's go over to episode of 48 of songs from a padded envelope with gabriel prokofiev hello my name is gabriel prokofiev and at the end of the show we're going to hear a track of mine that's called mobocracy and the demo was actually called tech sim but eventually I renamed it. Great. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show, Gabriel. Um, For us, we're moving into somewhat unknown territory for the podcast here. It's the kind of first opportunity we've had to speak to someone who works primarily within the the field of classical music. Um, And like Mm. you said, you sent us over, you sent us over the final version from from your new album Um, and then a very early demo version. Um, can you start by telling us a bit about how the composition and the recording of that early demo version? Okay, well, I mean, what's funny, actually, is you said you, you've got a classical, first time you had someone classical on the show, but I mean, 
I would say this track is me having a lot of um, fun with a more of a sort of dance music, techno-inspired piece. But I suppose still from a kind of classical perspective, I mean, my, my approach to classical music is to really open my ears out much wider than the, the narrower path that a lot of classical composers follow and, and really take on board all, all genres of music and styles that, that I think could bring something exciting to a classical piece. And um, this piece, Tech Sim, so what happened actually, the, the origins of that, um, it's got kind of a crooked story because I was doing a, um, this sounds very classical, I was doing a ballet score and that was for um, um, Stuttgart Ballet. And they're a really amazing ballet company. And I was um, very lucky to have been approached by them. They, I can't, I'm trying to think how, yeah, I think one of their, one, the, the, the choreographer, um, Cassia Kolzelska, she'd come across my music online and she did a little piece to my music. And then she approached me to do a 30-minute ballet. And the ballet was going to be about, it was kind of a dystopian ballet about um, people getting sucked into their screens and getting becoming sort of slaves to technology, you know, something that we're all very aware of. And it was sort of taken a bit further and having the screen become almost like a religious cult, you know, and you can kind of, and they had these amazing lights on stage. So that this glowing kind of purple light that all the dancers were sort of gravi- gravitating towards. So it's sort of this balletic, abstract exploration of becoming a screen addict. And um, that, that, I, I, that, it kind of came to the, the idea was the piece that would get to this climax when people were kind of giving themselves up to the screen. And um, I did this kind of techno-y, you know, I guess, machine-sounding music. And one of the demos was this track, Tech Sim, and it didn't get used in the ballet. So it, I really liked it, and it was just sitting there on my hard drive. And then then I got, then the next year, I got then invited to do a commission for another ballet. But this was even more weird. This was ballet and juggling. So there's this group called Gandini Juggling. And I mean, I would never in my whole life ever have thought I'd work with juggling because I think it's great fun. But I, I kind of, for me, it was always something you saw people doing on the street, busking, and it was, and it's kind of a spectacle rather than a creative thing. And and actually, I was, I was, re- I was completely wrong because when I saw this group Gandini Juggling, they, they, they come from a cabaret perspective, and then they bring in kind of absurdist theatre, and they bring in all these other really, really creative aspects. They wear great costumes, they dance. They all, everyone in the group, different ages, different backgrounds, and it's it's very very interesting. And, and actually, the juggling creates this tension where you know you're kind of wondering, are they going to drop the clubs? They're going to drop the balls. And they had teamed up with a brilliant choreographer called Alexander Whitley, and he used to be in Rombert Dance Company. And he's, well, no, was he even? He might be. I might be wrong. He might be might be in Royal Ballet. I can't remember. But he was anyway part of a kind of you know high-end sort of contemporary dancer he's very stylish choreographer very his stuff's very cool and in fact he's not someone you'd imagine would work with juggling ever and he but he was working with them and they approached me to do the music so then they asked for stuff for material to work with so i started making them demos 
And then I remembered this other stuff I had, including Tech Sim, this track, and I sent it to them and they just loved it because it's kind of this quirky, it's slightly bonkers techno. It's 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 got a 4-4 four, four beat, but on top of the 4-4 four, four beat is a 5-beat melody. So the kind of thing just feels a bit off off kilter. And... Um, they really loved it and it and it actually appears twice it appeared twice in the in the ballet like two times as of a little weird interlude and they interlude and they did these this kind of slightly weird sort of um com, kind of um what's the word like restrained kind of weird movements kind of scuttling along the stage almost like insects or bugs to the piece and so that's and so that's when i did the demo for them i kind of made it into something and and then two years later i was then gonna, making an album that's just come out breaking screens and i that most of the music for that came from this ballet that i'd done with gandini juggling and that had been done for the for them for the for their show so then i had to change the tracks a bit to make it into an album you could listen to and so then this track tech sim i extended it i doubled the length I added a new section towards the end. And then I, most importantly, I recorded a string orchestra in Moscow playing this crazy techno melody on top to kind of finish it off. And, and then I renamed it Mobocracy because I thought I was looking for a title that was maybe a bit more descriptive because tech sim, I don't even know why I called it that. It was something to do with it being a bit techno, the sim bit, I'm not sure. Maybe it was simulated techno whatever but um mobocracy is a word meaning rule by the mob and it kind of feels like the mob ruling the the, the situation i think that's my favorite ever demo story <laughs> <laughs> demo origin story yeah. there's so much so to think long about yeah. i tried to keep it as tight as i could oh n- nailed it i mean that just it's fascinating i'm I, I want to kind of track back to the beginning of that process when the that that sort of initial sort of commission ca- uh, idea came in and mm. how you begin that writing process. And I'm thinking because of the the kind of the world that you work in and the the sort of the the um, the technology, the way you use technology. Mm. Um, and this is going to this is going to sound a little bit of a sort of punter question, really. But how, when you're beginning that writing process, just the sheer vastness of sound and textures that you've mm-hmm. got at your disposal, at your disposal when you're given a commission like that, how for you do you start to sift through that and find the sounds that are going to work? Okay, so yeah, I mean, it is. It's a it's a big problem with electronic music. Is the um, is the yeah the kind of and so seemingly endless sounds available to you. So, I mean, part of it, part of the decision comes from just thinking, well, what sounds do, 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 do you really like personally? You know, what kind of sounds excite you and what sounds maybe you think have mileage in them, you know, because some, there are certain sounds, electronic sounds that just get done to death. Everyone just keeps using them again, and again. And you, it's like it's like say the eight oh eight drum kit. It's sort of hard to believe that that's still it. Still kind of sounds cool, you know. It kind of gets reborn. I don't know every ten years, and then and it just keeps coming back. And so um, you know, and I still I still like that sound. I think I think actually in this track, it's a nine oh nine drum kit. I did actually use, and that was partly because of sort of wanting to reference techno early techno music, but. Um, 
in in this case, so I wanted to create this um, kind of scary and addictive, um, um, sort of desperate mechanical feeling. You know, the people who are just so absorbed by the screen. Um, my, I've got a son who is now thirteen, but actually, when I was doing that, which is like about four years ago. It was he really. There was this point when he got really, like, uncharacteristically angry when we didn't let him go on Minecraft or something. And I think this is a common experience, especially with boys. And um, a lot of people will know what I'm talking about. And it was like, what the hell is going on? You know, it was it was literally it was like the the behaviour of a of a of a, of a crack, crack addict or something. And it was like this real like desperation. And I wanted to channel that and and. And so I was thinking of these sort of gnarly, dirty, distorted electronic sounds, you know. And um, and so um, there were other other pieces I used for that when I went for this that FM synthesis, which is when it's it's not just a pure sound wave, but it's two sound, two or three or more sound waves modulating each other, and you get this quite weird sort of sound and 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 this sound the, the main sound here has got a bit of that and it was about um having a sound that's slightly like the the tonality of it is slightly off you know it's it's slightly just the nature of the sound is like discordant it's slightly unnerving and then having so so for me you know i did i was using analog an analog synth for this and 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 so already when you use an analog synth or a digital, or like just a classic synth, it, it does restrict. There's only a certain amount of sounds you can do from it. So I, I was just going for this kind of driving, dirty sound, and then and then the next, then I actually started to, in the final version of the track, I actually really heavily distorted that as well. So it starts off distorted, so you can't even hear what's being played, and then slowly the distortion gets reduced until you can hear the melody, and. Um, you know, actually, you know, maybe I even, I think actually I did use an FM, just a plug-in on Logic, like something like the FM synth, which is actually a really effective synth sound. And yeah, so I was definitely playing with those sounds that have this sort of weird resonance to them. And um, so, yeah, it was about really just the image I wanted to create. And is, is that a sort of familiar way of working for you to start with a kind of narrative or a concept as the kind of beginning point for a piece of music? Yeah, I think it's really, I always, so my, my approach to composing is to do a lot of sketches. And I just, I kind of, I do way more sketches than I'll need. So I, I try and get myself in a state of mind where I'm just like, just, just, just stuff's just coming out, you know, and you just, every, I, I'll do like a week, if I can, I'll do a week or two weeks or more of just sketching. And, and I'll do, spend like an hour or two hours just doing a quick sketch, like, just a 30 second one minute idea just getting the ideas out and then i'll move on to the next one and then at the end you have this big collection of sketches but while i'm doing the sketches it's very important that i have an idea of what they're for you know what the me what what they're about so there'll be some kind of aim some narrative or it could just be a theme or an emotion i mean that's what's great about working with dance and ballet is that you do have a narrative so you've got this image you think so this this Today I'm going to be working on something that's about this like desperate addiction to the screen, and then there'll be there's another section about um, 
in the same piece when there was someone in the community who'd been kind of who who who'd actually been turned out of the community and wasn't part of the cult and so there was this kind of lonely outcast figure and what I'd probably do is I'd probably sketch for a few for the morning say on this like frantic mechanical thing and then when I felt like I needed a break I'd switch over to a different theme and that's typical how I work I'll like like uh, the, the last big thing I did was actually a viola concerto so that was like a more like a real classical piece with four movements each with a different mood. So then, you know, I was doing like a slow movement that was more meditative and melancholic. There was a very dramatic, fast movement. And again, I'll be swapping between the two. And, you know, it's just a way of kind of just trying to get as many ideas as you can out and having this theme in the back of your mind all the time and and not thinking too much about the theme. I think if you're too preoccupied with the theme when you're coming up with musical ideas, you, you actually can start to constrain you and you it can get a bit contrived. So it's this kind of funny game, yeah, about you know, maybe writing notes, looking at pictures, thinking about the theme, and then forgetting about it, doing the music, but the theme's there in the background. Going through that process, it's, it's really fascinating hearing you talk about it as well because you're, you're speaking very physically about the music as well and, and, and moving a lot as you're, as you're speaking about it. You can see that... Um, sort of articulated through the way that you're, you're you're moving as well as talking and i'm and i'm wondering about um when you just going back to sounds um when you're doing your sketches um how uh, do, do you find yourself in a position sometimes where melody will start to influence the choice of sound as well where you might hit upon a particular melody that takes you away from the, the texture or the sound that you were initially using mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, what what normally happens, what I like to do is um, often I like to get some kind of texture or rhythm or kind of something going in the background. You know, in classical terms, you could call it an ostinato or you could call it a beat if you were like, if it's more electronic music, but something that's there and that creates a sort of background. And then that, from that, then sonically, that will then trigger more melodic ideas or you know or or if i was doing something more gentle yeah i might play some different chords or some slower notes and then a melody will come on top of that and then when the melody when normally the melody is something that normally more often comes kind of in your head and then you think oh that's the sound i need and then you're searching for it and yes some some you know i might have a sound that i'm working with and, and and i kind of know that's the right sound for it but you're saying, you know, are there times when you start with the sound and you go, no, no, that's right. I mean, the the problem is, is if if you, you're looking for a different sound and you've got a melody coming to mind, you don't want to lose that train of thought by then searching for another sound. Because with electronic music, sometimes finding a new sound can can be quite can be quite slow. But if if you know if it's a synth that you're used to working with like then it's quite fast and you know, I can just quickly just make a few quick changes, make the sound brighter, just open up the filter a bit or something or change the wave. So yeah, there are ways as kind of, you can make quick changes and then, and then actually then when you get the right sound that helps you're right, that helps the melody definitely. So you kind of, you make the sound a bit thinner and then the melody wants to kind of go higher and soar and go, go in that direction. Or if you want something, I don't know if it starts getting, 
darker and slower maybe you start adding some distortion and then it slows it down and you start enjoying just the kind of texture of the sounds so yeah that no that's yeah you you the two kind of can work together definitely yeah when you started to build up this kind of body of work of work that became eventually became breaking screens did you know at that point that you would want involvement from an orchestra at some point yeah so um i mean actually with with when um so what happened is when i was working with gandini juggling and alexander whitley to do the, the this dance piece so that was called spring actually though it wasn't it was more about colors it was more about it wasn't really about spring in the typical sense it was about the when all the in spring all these colors all these flowers come out it was about this idea of all the different colors that can come out in the in the kind of beginning of the year i don't know it was quite an abstract theme but um and the kind of energy of color but when i was doing that they wanted string they wanted strings in it because they said we've worked with this really good string ensemble uh, called Camerata Almavera and um so they said we'd like it to have strings but they didn't have strings for the first whole year of performances so I used um fake strings you know samples of a string orchestra to make it and which was kind of a compromise you know and I and and then when when we did get the the live strings it was only five players it was only a quintet and I'd imagined it a bigger group. So it was only when I recorded the album, I, I, I had this opportunity to work with this string orchestra in Russia, open sound orchestra. And they, they're like, I think that was 18 or 20 musicians. And they just had an incredible sound. And that just took it to the whole next level. I mean, that was, they, they, I mean, they, the, the, uh, when they recorded it, they actually changed my perspective on the music. It was really exciting. Yeah. Oh, can you say a little bit more about what that was like? What that? What you mean by that? Well, so so for example, in 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 the the the, the dance project, a lot of the music was quite intense and and quite driving and, and kind of angular, and and they said, look, we want to have these interludes. They're going to be really gentle. And they said, just do something really easygoing, really relaxing. And I was like, okay, yeah, you just want something like some nice chords, just something really pleasant. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll just, and I just quickly kind of knocked out these ideas. I didn't really think about it too much. And, and then I actually, I kind of, I enjoyed doing it and they were quite, they were these just simple chord progressions and it was just kind of like a loop. And, and, and in the dance thing, they actually spoke over the top of these sections. So it was really like background music. And then when I went to, when I was in Moscow, we performed some of the pieces live in a gig and then we'd, they'd managed to get this studio, Melodia, this old Russian label, had, had a studio that they'd sorted for us. And and I and so and I had these other pieces and they said, Well, let's do should we do these as well? And I was like, Well I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, you might as well. They're quite easy to play. And 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 I'd and, and they basically the these pieces that originally had people talking over were suddenly now these very simple, minimal minor chord kind of they're called the sad colours interludes. There are three of them. And they um, and they actually played the each piece twice, but when they played these chords, the sound of the orchestra was just I don't know they're 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 really good string players, and there was just something incredible about 
just the sound of a string orchestra just playing very slowly. I mean, everyone, you know, we, anyone who's seen an orchestra and, and, and with film music that's used a lot, you know, just, just, just a long held chord on a great orchestra is, is magical. But these guys are just, uh, they're really, they're really top musicians. They're all from like the, a lot of them from the Moscow Conservatoire. They're all quite young. They're like really keen to do something different. And they've been playing all this angular stuff. And then they just sat on these slow minor chords and it just, it just sounded so magical. And then when I brought the recordings home into my studio and I played them back in the studio where I know the sound, it was just like, wow, these are just like, you know, it's it's simple music. I felt like it didn't fit in the album because it was so contrasting. But actually, that's why it worked on the album because it was such a like an ear cleanse, and and you just hear just hearing them play. You know, so that was very very exciting. And then and actually, and then for even for the for the other for the rhythmic stuff and the more angular stuff, the power they have. Like the, there's a certain you know, Russian strings are famous throughout the world, and they 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 really they play in quite an aggressive way and and they're very they play right on the beat and um there's a, a story i can relate to which is that um a, yeah, two year two years earlier i'd recorded my saxophone concerto in in russia as well with the ural philharmonic in the south of russia with yekaterinburg um philharmonic or well, ural philharmonic orchestra in yekaterinburg the sort of it's the sort of third city of russia, russia. And um, so I've done this saxophone concerto, and that was written for Branford Marsalis, this jazz, amazing jazz saxophonist. And he's he's mainly a jazz man, but he does classical as well. He's done it for the last 15 years. And we managed to get him over to Russia. We flew him over to, for the recording. And he's up for anything. And he it was amazing he agreed to do it. He just turned up. He'd been doing other gigs. He just turned up, like hardly any sleep, got straight in there, did the session, did a brilliant job, and then we drank loads of vodka afterwards and then he went back. But the, the, the thing that was one of the most interesting things, what my point was, is that he um, he was in there and he was sitting with the orchestra and he like he had this reaction. He was like looking side to side. He was like like with this kind of what the fuck kind of look on his face. And and I went and, and we had like a break or something and he spoke to him and goes, he goes, these guys... They're like, I've never played with an orchestra like this. They're like almost ahead of the beat. They're so on beat. They're like pushing forward. And he said he could feel them like pushing him forward. And he said he never played with an orchestra like that. You know, and he played with a lot of great orchestras. And in America, the orchestras are very tight. Their rhythm is great. UK, the same. But in Russia, there's this extra, uh, there's this urgency. There's this like drive. And from the strings as well, you know, there's no like softness except suddenly when they play the slower thing suddenly this other side comes out but you know i re and, and when he said that i was really impressed because you know jazz jazz players they know about rhythm that's they've got a sense of timing that a lot of classical players don't really have because you know people follow a score and and a score doesn't give you real rhythmic the real subtleties of rhythm you know there's there's little tiny microseconds in rhythm and in accent especially the accents as well that really change the feel and that's that's not focused on enough in classical music and i write really rhythmic music so it's always the challenge for me is to try and get people to, to feel feel the rhythm and yeah the the the, the 
the open sound orchestra on the breaking strings album they really screens they really they got the they had that rhythm rhythmic edge so yeah is there ever ever an anxiety in handing over when you've written a score written a piece of music is there an anxiety in handing that over to a group of people or is it more more what you're saying that it's actually there's an excitement in in putting that into the hands of other people yeah it's a it's a bit of both it's it's that's a really really good question because there's there's that there's different anxieties so there's there's a personal anxiety that maybe the score didn't quite get all the ideas right you know because you've got these this concept these musical ideas and you you're putting it in a score and you've you know sometimes i think did i put enough accents in did i put enough phrasing did i give enough detail to really exactly get what i was feeling on the other hand yeah there's definitely an excitement of just handing it to other human beings and letting them give their interpretation and and having been someone who's done a lot of electronic music and worked in the studio and spent hours just like with a mouse drawing like fader lines with filters or volume curves or panning and and trying to shape something electronic to give it more feeling and which can be such a you know you could, it's kind of almost a, it's almost a never ending process actually the kind of final mixing production of electronic music when you write a score you've got all the musical ideas but you know someone else they're going to put their feeling and their expression and their phrasing and that's what they're brilliant at and so suddenly all these hours that you might have spent in the studio doing it someone else is just going to do it because that's what they do that's their 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 speciality and that's a wonderful feeling and 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 that was something that really drew me to writing scores because i was i was to be honest frustrated with producing electronic music because it's there's a the, the kind of finishing process can be very slow and on one hand it's fast because you can get ideas down quickly but then to kind of finesse it is is slow and it's really great to to hand over someone else to do the interpretation uh, do you have a memory of the first time you handed a score over and had your music played back to you yeah i mean it was and it was terrifying i mean that was the first the first no i mean even i've kind of got immune to it i've worked out a strategy but the first few times you hand over a score it is just it's it's horrible i mean um <laughs> I mean probably the 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 big one for me was the my concerto for turntables which I um which was the breakthrough piece for me because it got performed in the proms in 2011 BBC proms and then that ended up on YouTube and loads of people saw it and it it kind of got me loads of work actually it really helped my career for writing orchestral music but when I first did it it was um 2006 so it's like 15 years ago and um origin the first performance was like a sort of not even a proper performance like a sharing and it was done at Trinity College of Music with their contemporary music ensemble and um, and and in those days i i there's this software called Sibelius which is the score software that most people use i'd always use logic audio as my main platform and i'd create this piece with logic audio and actually i gave them parts made in logic audio not even in Sibelius so the score itself was like not even presented very in the best way because logic is okay but it's not really it hasn't it doesn't look like a 
published score, if you know what I mean. It's, it's got a little bit basic thing to it. But um, I remember it just, you know, things just didn't sound right at all. And I was just freaking out, you know. And eventually it got there, you know, but you have to have a lot of discussions and trying to, and then so there's a lot of telling people how it should be. And fortunately, in that case, it wasn't a, an orchestra on a salary because, you know, professional orchestras have very limited rehearsal time. So any mistakes or misunderstandings in the score that lead me to try and explain it mean that they've lost 10, 20 minutes when they could be rehearsing. And that's actually critical because, you know, then they just won't play it as well. So um, that's something I learned, you know, about how the score's got to just, you can't have any mistakes in it. And But the, other, the, the big thing I learned is that the first rehearsal is, is never going to sound right because they're just trying to get their heads around the piece. And I had this thing with the early pieces I wrote is that in the first rehearsal, I started judging the music itself and I was going, it all sounds wrong. Oh, I've done a, I fucked it up. I've done, all the orchestration's wrong. Those instruments are too loud. Those are too quiet. I've done this wrong, that wrong. And then I'd be about to like, I'd be writing all these notes down and then I'd go to the conductor like, look, I've got to change this and this. And they'd go, and they'd go, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You know, it's just the first rehearsal, calm down. And surprise, surprise, second rehearsal, totally different. You know, and they've started to get the piece. So, so a lot of it's just, just try, you know, trying to let go, I guess, and, and, and trying to trust your instincts with the score. I mean, some, I have made sometimes made some cha- last minute changes. You know, what, what, what I sometimes do is maybe in terms of the structure, maybe I'll leave a section in that I'm not sure about. And then I'll go, oh, no, let's cut that section. It's just too long. Or you'll be, oh, no, let's keep that section. It's working. So that's my one. That's an easy way. Because actually they don't like you changing too many notes once they've started rehearsing, if it's an orchestra. Because they're like, look, we've got the gig tomorrow. We can't, we don't want to be like, you know. So that's, yeah, tricky. You, you were talking about the your concertos for orchestra and turntables. And I think I read somewhere that... Um, that you had some sort of um, misgivings about make, whether that would work as a concept and that, and I just wondered yeah. what kind of what kind of convinced you otherwise. Um, yeah, so with the turntables, yeah, I was just worried it would be a be a real gimmick, and um, but what convinced me otherwise is that um, I remembered like turntablism um, events that I've been to. I've been to some of these. I hadn't been to like the main DMC competitions, but in Birmingham, I'd been to like a DMC. Uh, I guess it was the Birmingham Regional DMC Championship or some kind of battle. And then I'd been to another one in York. And, um, and you know, it had totally blown me away what these turntablers could do, you know, the, the, the range of sounds they could do. And, and just the level of skill, you know, they were like, they really were on a par with like a virtuoso pianist or violinist. It was this kind of, that level when someone's doing something that you just can't, you just can't conceive how they even learned to do it. Like how much practice did they have to do? Just the, the detail with their hands and the, the, the nuances. And then they were mix, they weren't even wearing headphones. These DJs were just putting the turntables, the, the records on. They had these little bits of tape, you know, and the needle would just drop in the right place. You know, sometimes it seemed like they actually just could see the groove. They like had like hawk vision, you know, they could see the groove there to drop it in. And so it was more when I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, in the 90s, I remember as a teenager, there was a, 
there was a there was a, they did they, they the, the worst moment was when they re-released Bill Withers' Lovely Day, and it had this awful scratchy like waka 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 lovely day lovely day waka waka and it was like scratching had become like this commercialized thing and it and it was when that happens to something underground like that it kind of kills it and so suddenly no one wanted to know about scratching it became like just the cut this no-go thing and so that i think that was still slightly in the back of my mind but then when i remembered actually forgot about trends and preconception i thought what a versatile instrument it is and 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 then the key for me was i suddenly thought it doesn't i don't have to use the classic scratch sounds because in my mind scratching was all about either the 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 r scratch which you know this one that people all the hip-hop djs use or the or scratching using a rap like an acapella of a a vocal and i kind of imagine this i this orchestra with a sort of james brown scream or something being scratched over and i just just thought oh this just sounds like really tacky you know i like those scratch sounds in hip-hop but with an orchestra won't work and then i thought hang on i could put what if i put the orchestra themselves on the turntables scratch with that and then suddenly sounds completely different and that yeah that was so it was like that was the big realization so it was like recognizing how versatile the instrument is and then thinking that actually you can put anything on the turntables. You really can. I mean, it's weird that still people use go back to the old sounds. There's a kind of set of main scratch sounds that all the DJs still use. But actually, you know, you can use anything. I mean, I ended up slightly imitating some of those sounds because they scratch well. But the point was taking it from the orchestra made it organic. Yeah. Um, what was the reaction from the, 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 the scratch community the hip-hop community to to that to your work and you using turntables in that way um oh it was really really positive i mean um the because you know the the the, in in, by like two mid noughties you know the it, it the whole scratching thing had become a bit more underground and there's a very strong community there and everyone's and people that that community they're always looking they want to see to share their share 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 the love for what they're doing, you know, and and they're all passionate about it. And um, I mean, I'd say that the thing that really brought it home to me was when when it was done at the proms in 2011 um, by Mr. Switch, did it? Who'd been a DMC champion? Um, Tony Prince, who's the he's kind of like the godfather of scratching in the UK, and he I. I he must be in his 60s or something he actually founded the dmc the organization dmc in the 80s when it was called i think it was like was it disco mix club or something i can't even remember what it means anymore but it started off as a it was it was like a they they made these special vinyls to share between all the djs and they released and it was like this it was like a society for djs and scratching became part of that scene and he's the dmc now run these global competitions and tony prince was there and he was just over the moon i mean he was like scratching as arrived at the albert hall the bbc proms so for him personally that it arriving the, the, the scratch djing arriving in a classical concert was was a big moment and then for me to 
witness him saying that was like was mind blowing really because I've got so much respect. That's a whole. I mean, that culture's. You know, I I like you know. Kind of embraced that culture. Took you know took a soloist from that world, but it's a whole world in itself. You know, I've just like added a little, a kind of extra little detour to that world. But you know, but to 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 hear him appreciate it was really was a very humbling moment for me. So that was very exciting. And then and then other scratch DJs have done it since, and they've all done it in a different way. There was one guy, um, a, an ex champion and a brilliant scratch DJ in Copenhagen called DJ Noise. Classic. Like, I met him, a classic like Danish giant, huge guy, and he's 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 kind of like their. Um, He's like the kind of one of the big hip hop DJs in Denmark. So he does a regular hip hop show and and he did a completely different interpretation, like his whole way of playing it, you know, was really different to say Mr. Switch or DJ Yoda. So so you know that's that's been really great. Uh, Gabriel, with the with the release of this album, you've talked about wanting to sort of break down musical boundaries, but also referencing yeah. about um, challenging kind of racial, social, and political divisions. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, that was, I mean, it was really that was really interesting. You know, when you make an album, you start thinking about um, you have to think of what what you're going to call the album and. And in this case, you know, the tracks have been done. A lot of the tracks had first appeared on this dance piece, and they didn't have proper titles. So I was trying to think about the titles. And I was trying to think about what, what, what was behind the music. Because though the tracks came together for this dance piece, some of them, a few of them, had been done a bit earlier for another project called Broken Screens, which was about, which was already a little bit about consumerism and urban life. And and that had been done with a trumpeter, classical trumpeter, Alison Balsam, very classical performer, for a solo gig. And she'd wanted me, she wanted me to do something for turntables and trumpet. But then I had to um, apologise and say I'm not actually a turntablist. So I can't do turntables, but I could do like electronics. And that had a lot of bass, bass deep bass in it and some and some electronic dance music influences. And that was about, Broken Screens was about, initially like the whole thing of why phones and iPads, the screens break so easily. It's kind of almost a design aim that they make it all out of glass, you know, something that's going to fall out of your pocket. Let's make the front and the back out of glass just so you have to buy a new one or get it replaced, you know. And this whole weird thing that you get this brilliant technology, but that's designed to actually break, you know, this kind of, this thing of we've got this technology moving us forward and at the same time it's, you know, creating all this waste, it's it's um, just another way of making more money. So this cynicism with this idealism, you know. I mean, Apple, um, they, they, a lot of problems with them, you know, because of their the image they create of being this creative thing, but they, you know, actually it's all very cynically um, money-making. But um, so that was the thing. But then, but then a big theme for me has been about genres, about, you know, I, I when I was a kid, I was doing a lot of, pop music and then electronic dance music then i end up really getting into garage and grime and producing quite a lot of that grime and i was playing electro as well and um i re- particularly remembered with the grime thing you know going right back and actually uk garage as well with like groups like so solid and um 
and then um, we'd say Roll Deep. And there was a big, massive backlash from the tabloid press at the time. And the, the whole genre was kind of criminalised almost, do you know what I mean? And And it definitely felt like, there was a racial agenda going on with that because it was it was it was a new it was a, a new genre. Grime and garage was 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 a an inner city black British genre that emerged suddenly with quite a lot of energy, and there was this kind of backlash against it. And 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 at the time, I remember thinking that you know, often and, and well, it's more that coming from a classical doing classical as well, and there was often there's this sort of distinction of classical being high art, this idea of it being this, you know, somehow superior art form to other popular music. And, and it's something that's fascinated me all the time, these differences. And then you start seeing, then even within popular music, people are then saying some genres are more troublesome than others. And then often race comes into that and then social status. So, Actually, genres, on one hand, it's just different styles of music, and some people like that, some people like that. But then you realise that hidden within the genre distinctions are these social the, the social and class and racial distinctions. And it's sometimes about people trying to preserve their position in society. And, you know, a, a lot. I think most people involved, they don't even, not aware of that, and they don't even care about that. But somehow, you know, people want to protect their way of life, their culture, and somehow these things very subtly do start to have some subtle but negative impacts and then reinforcing, you know, I mean, it's been a lot of discussion of it over the last couple of years, you know, these sort of subliminal kind of passive um, prejudices people have that they don't, they take for granted, they're not even aware of, you know, and they things that you'll say that you don't you you have to actually really go back and question your outlook on 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 race and on other people and realize the the kind of subliminal things you've taken for granted it just in the way in the culture that you've grown up in so yeah so so me doing an album that on one hand has classical strings but does have grime beats in it has some techno beats has some kind of um yeah, garage kind of things or kind of breakbeat things. So it, it and and I and as I was doing it, I was thinking I had this paranoia that the people in the classical world, you know, I've, that are going to check out the album, people maybe who bought my concerto albums that were just orchestral albums, the last two albums I did, and maybe the journalists who reviewed them, they would go, well, well, this really isn't this isn't serious music, you know. Unfortunately, you know, Gabriel's kind of you know, he's given in to this kind of dance, urban style. And, and you know, it's just, it, it, it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it's just not a serious, serious piece of music. And I was thinking, my God, I, and I was getting worried about this. And I think, well, this is just some music I've made and it's music I like and it's influences that appeal to me. Why am I, get, why should I be getting worried about this? And it showed me, you know, that I'm I'm aware that there is a s- sensitivity there, and there really shouldn't be, you know. So, so I was I was thinking, yeah, for me, breaking s- what was broken screens about phones actually then became breaking screens, and the screen became broader than just a computer screen or a phone screen, but it became 
kind of screens and barriers between different genres and then moving on from that even different social groups you know it seemed it, for a moment i thought maybe that's a far-fetched analogy but it, but it does actually make sense and um yeah you, why can't you know if why can't different genres interact you know i know there's you know there's the whole thing people hark back to the 70s and they talk about fusion and jazz fusion and that like scratching in the 90s died a horrible death and fusion became like an f word you know people were like oh no you can't do fusion you know oh my god fusion you, and so this idea of fusing different genres somehow has become a no 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 and there's this and everything's got to be authentic but actually every genre is always fusing and merging because we don't live in a bubble and yeah i don't, i'm not going to use the word fusion either i don't want to get tainted with that but but you know the idea of of different genres coming together i think is is fine but it was it somehow was a bit problematic and so and so yeah, and, the, and this album it it isn't exactly classical it isn't exactly electronic either so it's yeah i th- i think it's i think it's really fascinating to set yourself that challenge of tackling uh Un- the sort of unconscious bias that you're that you're talking about by asking the listener to reckon with um, ideas and sounds and genres and uh, and 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 kind of musical uh, movements, if you like, um, that perhaps they wouldn't necessarily uh, choose to encounter. You know, mm. uh, and I, I, how how successful do you think you've been? Are you are you happy? with how far you've, with, with the realisation of that idea, because I think it's massively important. And I think culture as a art has a really important role to play more, more than ever to encourage mm. uh, or to challenge people to reckon with those differences and those unconscious biases. Well, I do think um, it's interesting. I mean, there's, because there's, um, there's also this current fear of cultural appropriation as well. That's become a big word. And, you know, and and that thing of like, if 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 one if a musician brings together different styles, it's like, well, are they stealing one or are they stealing the other or what's going on here? So so you know that in itself, and 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 that's really worrying because a lot of the most exciting musical things are when people do explore on the edges of their genre or outside their genre. That's when the new things happen, and. And so this idea that you've got to stay within a sort of what's your authentic sound is is really limiting. And um, I think the main thing is that, you know, when you do explore with different genres, you do, you, it should never be done in a tokenistic way. It shouldn't be like, oh, I know, wouldn't it be cool if I did a, um, did a, a classical piece with a grime beat? And I've never, I'm, that's certainly never been my approach. You know what, what? What happened is that in the noughties, I was dying to. I was doing making electronic beats, and and I was in a band called Spectrum, which was more like electro, sort of punk funk. That was a li- bit of a live live band with the electronics. But then also, I was really excited by the, the 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 UK garage scene, and I just started making those beats. And then the grime scene started emerging, and and I'd made quite a lot of beats, and I'd found some MCs locally. And I just really got into the scene. You know, I, I didn't necessarily have the same, exactly the same background as the guys who were really starting it. But, you know, I, I became part of it. And, and the whole point about 
what the great thing about music is that if people are passionate enough about the style and they invest in it, they become part of it. And then everyone shares their influences and their styles. And that's what makes it rich. And so those electronic styles kind of became part of my bloodstream. So when I did an album like Breaking Screens, it wasn't like I was going, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring together these worlds. It was actually something that just happened naturally. And it's something that's been building over the years. You know, I'd, I'd been building, I'd been doing electronic music for some dance projects. And then I did, I did one a few years before for Rombear Dance Company, and they wanted strings and electronics. And so I'd done some beats and some noises with the strings. And then this was like the next stage when I said, okay, I'm going to make the beats really strong now. And actually I hadn't, it, I hadn't done any grime or dance music for about five years. I'd kind of stopped or even you know, six years. And inside I was desperate to do some. I really wanted to just make beats again. And so that just came flooding out and and that and they and the beats came out stronger than maybe I would have expected. So it was quite it was quite a natural process. And I mean I think those were the pieces I did then. I think there's I I I I'm I, I I'm keen to do more of it and I think I could I could take it a lot further to be honest. You know, it's just it's in fact I a year no, two years ago, just before lockdown, I did another piece when I borrowed a friend's modular synths, like all those modular units when you plug all these different units together and i made some really kind of grungy more techno-y kind of beats and that was really fun you know that was another sort of angle so i mean i think it's endless i mean i think there's a there's there's, there's a very exciting middle ground and um that to be explored you know between between genres but the, the main thing is just to be really invest be serious about it you know there's a there's a really lovely thanks list that accompanies this release, isn't there? Mm. You know, stretches from Shostakovich to Captain Beefheart and yeah. Apex Twin. Or, or is that a good a good map to kind of follow if we want to see your, where where you're coming from? Um, oh God, I mean that was so. I mean, I've got a thing about um, influences and 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 may and paying your your sort of dues to you know where you where you where, where your music comes from and. And 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 just the history of people who worked hard before, and um, you know, there are some, there are some, um, there, there there are some albums that come out, and you go, God, you've really been heavily influenced by so and so, or you've even ripped off so and so, and then you hear read an interview from the artist, and they don't even mention any of the artists that they've blatantly ripped off, and I I haven't ripped anyone off, I don't think, and I haven't consciously been influenced direct I, i'm not following any particular producer to be honest there's there's just a lot of i just like a lot of different music so it all kind of then comes together in this strange way and 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 but i feel strongly that i should always give a give thanks to the the musicians that i that i think inspired me but i made i made a list but i found it very hard because i i often forget There'll be. I'll probably remember in a few months. Go, Damn! Why didn't I put so and so on the list? You know what I mean? And why haven't I mentioned thank this artist? Because there are a lot of people who um, influence me. I mean, the, the funny thing is with um, electronic dance music is particularly is often there'll be an artist I've only done like two or three tunes that you know, you know, or one tune, you know, and and I can't list all of them, and I'm 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 not got a brilliant memory for all of them, but 
But I mean, yeah, the list I put there, I tried to give a kind of broad story, I guess, of people who I think were key, key influences for me. Yeah. But I mean, I could have put, I could have put more for sure. It's, it's always hard, but yeah, you, you, there's only a certain amount of space. Is is John Peel on there? I think you're legally obliged to put John Peel in on a thanks list on an album, aren't you? No, he he's not on he's not on there. Funnily enough, I mean, um, the thing with John Peel, I have to say, is that he played. There was some kind. There was some. I mean, you'll probably hate me for this, but there was certain indie music, and there was certain indie music kind of punky stuff that I just didn't wasn't really a fan of. I didn't like all the stuff he played. But I mean, that's part of what was good about him in a way that yeah. he played, but totally. what was great about him is he did how broad he, he gave airplay to stuff that would never have got airplay. So yeah, respect to you there. But. Yeah. Yeah. It was always, it was always a joke um, when, when you pick up an album and he would just, his name would just be on yeah, there. Automatically. automatically <laughs> first name down on the list. You know, I was in a band and, um, yeah. and he did play our single uh, our first single and and i and i made the argument of, uh, when we were writing the thanks list for the de- debut album and i said well put john peel down so why yeah why so, no because you just you have to you just uh, to convince everyone else that you had to do it they weren't they, they just had no perception yeah, but he, of it. he played if he played your track oh, no. because <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've been played by it. i don't think i don't know if i'd something when he died and whether i had anything out in time i might i think so but i don't know yeah okay uh first first experience in a a band first musical experience playing with someone else brilliant so i was in a in a band called syntax error and then we when i was when i was 11 years old actually we started no 10 we started at 10 and then when we were 12 we actually we recruited it was me and a friend nathan cooper then we recruited three more members and there were five of us when we were 12 and then we shortened the name to Syntax because all our mates were going, error. You know, there wasn't a very good kind of an error in the band name. And, um, and we did loads of local gigs. We made albums. We stuck up posters all around southeast London. So that was a really, that changed my life. I mean, it was a really great experience. Now, why aren't we playing a, a, a Syntax demo? Yeah, syntax is a demo. There are, there are, there are. Shit, maybe that's where it should have started with, but... That's like me with an unbroken voice. That's another whole. I mean, I don't know how. Yeah. Um, can we? Well, can we have you? Can we have you back on to do a syntax? syntax yeah, we era could. Episode. And, and you know, you know what? We did a reunion gig, um, twenty-five years later, and um, we then recorded all the tracks after the gig, and we remembered. We remembered all the songs, but we still haven't finished mixing the the recording. So. Maybe if I get that mixed and we release it, then I can. That would be an occasion. Come back, come back and talk about it, please. Lovely. Yeah, did yeah. The, there's a lot of stories there. Did the did the other members of Syntax stay involved with music? As, as you yeah, did? it's it, it's amazing actually. The um yeah the Nathan Cooper he's he's still writing songs in a in a sort of you know eighties nineties pop style. So he's under the name Kid Casio, spelt with K. Cassio with a K. And then David Schweitzer was the guitarist. He's he's a really successful composer for TV and film. He does a lot of documentaries and dramas. Um, and then Matt Close was the drummer. He's He plays in a band called Crazy P, like a sort of 
dance band, and he, but he's also a chef. And then John Williamson, the bass player, he he stopped doing music, but he can still play the bass. But yeah, we all we all really were yeah dedicated. Um, those uh, th- those experiences of a of, of a first band and and that that um, that moment when you first start playing and then you're locking in for the first time together, it's such an important moment. You know, it's, it's a it's a moment that you that you just that you never never forget. Um, but it's also something that you kind of try and chase a little bit as well and, and build upon. And then that's, that's the addiction of it. I think part, partly, um, how quickly did you move away from the sort of traditional band model into the sort of music making that you're doing now? Was that as a result of discovering electronic music and garage and what you were talking about before? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, the band, I mean, cause when I, cause I went to university to do music and, and that's when I got introduced to... I'd done a little bit on a computer, on a BBC B and an Atari at home. I'd done a little bit. And I was into the idea of sequenced music anyway. So I'd done a tiny bit of that. And then at uni, we I then got introduced to manipulating sound in a studio. And then that's that opened that whole world of, like, you can just create any sound and it becomes this more introverted thing. But I still played in a band then, you know, I couldn't get away from it. And um, it's, it's kind of to do with the, 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 the issue with the band is, is, is if you've got a really strong idea of what you want to do and then it's, you've got to sell it to the band and everyone's got to be on board. And if you want to do something, sometimes, well, especially when you learn about studio stuff, you do stuff that's really hard to even do with a band, you know. You, so there's that. And then there's the chance of writing for an orchestra and so then that changes because it's got to be a score. But um, the band thing, the, the band I was in, then Spectrum, the the last band I was in for, for many years, about 15 years, like the trouble there was, yeah, was the whole band dynamics and the arguments and all of that stuff. You know, that's another, it's always a balance, isn't it? It's like the, and that's part of the magic of it as well. But then sometimes you just want to, you don't want to worry. You just want to think about creating music. And then that's when the studio frees you up. But you get lonely. You know, you do want to socialise. I'm so relieved when I can go to rehearsals or work with a, with a dance company or whatever, you know, and be with people. It's a, it's a juggling thing. I mean, I, I really want to do it properly. I'd love to actually have a band, a proper band again. I kind of have tastes of it when I perform electronics with string, with the, with the string orchestra, the Russian Open Sound Orchestra, or next week I'm going to Switzerland. I'm going to perform with a string sextet. Or we'll just be a band for five days and then we'll say goodbye. You know, it's not the same. Study something, mate. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, do you know what the band might sound like if you in in your head now? If you could form it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I would like you know what the thing that you you know when you as you guys know you when you play in a band and you do a gig, you you that thing when you've got that energy like to get people i would you know i'd like i'd like to contrast with the classical stuff i'd like to get people jumping like physical i'd like to do something with a real physical aspect to it so you know i, I imagine i imagine like i'd like like a couple of percussionists and like some um but playing percussion and playing electronic percussion and um yeah, I, I, um, some synthesizers, I guess. I don't. Yeah, um, 
I'm not sure what else actually. I've got a yeah, you know, mixed a few, you know, a, a, I guess a, a, a some kind of bass instrument, a brass instrument, a, you know, a string instrument, a cello, probably a cello, bass cla- bass clarinet and cello. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, nice. Yeah, some face melting guitar solos. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, guitar, guitar would be a tricky one. Guitar. I mean, I, I feel sorry for guitar at the moment because very few bands like in the mainstream to even have guitar it's like slipped away again so yeah there'd there, yeah, be a temptation to have guitar you're right yeah. i was i was listening to your um the violin the 1914 concerto and mm. that's got that's got some proper shredding in there on the violin isn't it yeah that has yeah that is quite yeah, yeah it was really i mean that's the brilliant thing about writing a concerto you've got the the the, the soloists want they want the real fast stuff you know they want their moment to like really go for it yeah, and it is. You're right. It is. It does make you think of. It's a bit like the guitar solo thing for me. Definitely, I guess probably I grew up. E- well, yeah, equally with guitar solos to violin solos. Probably more, the guitar solo really goes for yeah, the whole virtuoso thing, you know, or sax solos as well. I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Gabriel, look, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating really brilliant hearing you uh, speak tonight yeah thank you so much for uh, indulging our questions um can we just finish off with you introducing the music that people are going to hear now please so this is a um yeah definite cross genre kind of mentalist um techno if you can say that um originally called tech sim this is the demo and um, I think are you going to play the, the, the it's such a short track. I think you can squeeze in the final version as well, Absolutely, totally. which became yeah. Mobocracy. And you can hear that on the album Breaking Screens and check out the other tracks as well. Thanks, Gabriel. Yeah, thanks, Gabriel. Cheers.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 